Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about cooperative living and Bloomington's growing cooperative movement. With us in the studio, we have three guests. Daniel Weddle is here. He's co-founder of Dandelion Village. Tom Makuda, the director of the Bloomington Planning Department. And Rhonda Baird, editorial assistant, editorial board of the, uh, at the Permaculture Activist. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. Or you can uh, join us for a conversation live. Uh, go to Noon Edition to join that live chat. So welcome, everybody. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Bob. Right. Welcome. That's our first live show of the year, so we're happy to have you all here. Um, interesting topic today, cooperative living. And, and Daniel Weddle, I want to start with you because you are deeply involved with this, with Dandelion Village. Can you uh, sort of explain to us the concept and what you're trying to do? Uh, yeah, a bunch of us have come together. Um, good number of young people, but we go all up to 50s or 60s. Uh, we purchased two and a quarter acres on the west side of Bloomington. Um, we're looking to build 10 houses and a big house together. And the, the primary drive is how do you become, like, in a changing economic climate, where do we fit in? Um, we're a generation that's laden with debt um, without prospects of much employment. So how do we proceed forward in an elegant way? And it also happens that the whole world needs to be following that suit. So it's just a, uh, a foray into an elegant solution that could be used much more widely. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to have Rhonda here because permaculture is a big part of all of that. Uh-huh. And she's a really strong member in that movement. So. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Rhonda. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, sure. Well, probably the first thing people need to know is what is permaculture. And... Um, it reaches back to a couple of Australians uh, in or people working in Australia in the 1960s, 70s, um, and they were critiquing the Green Revolution and the way that industrialized farming was impacting the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, so they coined something called permanent agriculture. But we, as the as the concept and the movements gone around the world, it's really come to mean permanent culture. And what does that mean? Well, it means has as many definitions as there are um, people practicing it. So one that I like to use is just how is to ask the question: How do we live more um, in congruence with nature? Um, and how how do we work to not just be sustainable, but to regenerate our our natural resources, regenerate our economic um, landscapes, our um, our uh, social landscapes as well. So it addresses all of those things. Mm-hmm. So how how does that blend in with the uh, with Daniel's cooperative living idea? Sure. Well, I mean, Dandelion is uh, I think going to be one of one of the best attempts um, in the in the United States, perhaps, and certainly in this region, for making that happen. Um, he's mentioned the economic scenario, but he's also taken that group has taken steps to address, you know, ecological limits and um, a per- living within. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. living within our means. Mm-hmm. Well, if I can uh, sort of get back into some of the specifics, so talk a little bit more about your plan. You said you'll have one, a, a big house, yep. and then other other buildings for people to share um, or in, individual residences, or how does that work? There are 10 individual residences. Those are um, you know up to three-bedroom dwellings, kind of a typical house that you would see. They are uh, largely naturally built. Um, there's a 400 square foot internal limit per floor, so they're very they're micro houses. Um, we picked a corner of the property that had the best solar access, and we divided up that corner 
by 10 to give each space the most they could have on that ground. Um, so those are more individual dwelling units. Um, the bigger 15-bedroom house acts a lot like this. there's a, a cooperative in town, Bloomington Cooperative Living. They currently own four houses. They just Each house is somewhat autonomous, but um, they come together to cook meals and so forth. And that 15-bedroom house would be very much uh, functioning that way. Cooking meals, um, it also brings us brings energy to the property and gives people an experience on the land, and it gives us hours to start constructing permaculture systems. Um, one of the difficult things is finding the, the labor and time to put these things up. So that house is sort of, um, from a permaculture standpoint, it gives us the hours and labor we need. From an economic standpoint, it creates the rental income that stabilizes the whole project. One of the difficult parts of being within the city limits is we have to go through the same engineering process and everything that a developer goes through, but we don't have the income stream. Mm-hmm. So we're finding ways to stabilize ourselves within the current economic situation. That's what right. the big house does. So if you're within city limits, are you going to be tied into a city sewer system then so you don't have to deal with that, or how does that work? Uh, we are tied into the city sewer, yeah. Okay, um, For other utilities, we'll be tied into gas and water as well. We'll collect a lot of our own water. And we're hoping to do, like, a centralized photovoltaic system on the mm-hmm. big house mm-hmm. that will help to offset the entire community. So, so this is kind of where you come in, Tom. So what, what special challenges ha- has this proposal uh, provided for you at the city? I would say that in all my years as planning director, which are now too numerous to mention, <laughs> Dandelion Village was really the most unique project that I ever worked on. And one of the great things as a planner is is the field is never static and you always mm-hmm. grow and change. Dandelion Village presented a lot of unique issues that we've never encountered before. Um, some of the issues include uh, the ownership of animals and uh, having animal ownership within city limits. And we're not just talking about chickens, which is something the city's been dealing with, but also goats. Mm-hmm. And so animal ownership in the city is a unique issue um, in this project that we had to work through. We also had to work through um, what I would call the the fear of the unknown and the, the fact that uh, eco-villages or cooperative housing is not an issue in the lexicon of plan commissioners and city councils. So we had to educate them on what that meant. Mm-hmm. And what it meant is... A lot of people living together under one roof, which in a student-oriented community always brings up issues of, well, is there an over-occupancy situation we have to worry about? Or what happens if the eco-village or co-op housing is not successful? We certainly hope it will be. But what happens later um, if it's not successful? So issues of animal ownership, uh, agriculture within the city limits, occupancy, um, unique housing construction. We're not talking about stick-built homes, which is what people are used to. Became an education process for me as well as all the people that we had to report to. And mm-hmm. the whole zoning process took about nine months. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how long the education process really took before people felt comfortable giving an approval. Are you learning about this stuff side-by-side side with council and the mayor? Or are you kind of the information processor that you learn about this stuff and then you teach them? I am trying to learn it before they do so I can help uh, with the education process. And both Danny as a developer and myself as a member of the planning department, we're trying to educate people as we went along and ease ease fears of the Mm -hmm. unknown as we went along. So Danny taught me a lot, and then I tried to help him convey that information to everybody that we have to report to, including neighbors, Mm -hmm. which were a big factor in this discussion. Yeah, what was the the neighbor's reaction, and have you won them over? Um, I guess I'll start. Uh, There was certainly initial resistance um, because of concern about what animals would do in terms of noise, in terms of sanitation. Um, There were concerns about population density. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we had to educate people is that's the last thing that they should be concerned about in terms of population density because the impact of an eco-village is much less than the impact of a standard residential subdivision with with cars, with blacktop, with drainage. Um, but again, it was the issue of we're not familiar with this. What will it do to us? And, and we had to work through that process. Danny and his organization were tremendous because they dealt with that at the grassroots, talking individually, person to person. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let, uh, go back to talk about the the planning issues here. Was, was did the plan or did the uh, land need to be rezoned in order to accommodate this? It did. Um, Co housing is more of an urban phenomenon in terms of of where it's located. Uh, as a result, this was a new issue for Bloomington to deal with. Uh, we don't have a code, for instance, that says co-housing is a permitted activity. We, we don't have a code for it, so we had to basically create our own regulations, uh, and that meant going through a rezoning of the land. Mm-hmm. Essentially, we did what's called a plan unit development uh, because we needed a lot of flexibility, and that's that's one of the reasons the process took so long. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel, what was what were some of the of the things that that um, you saw going through this process that you really had to work on people and, and sort of ease their fears? And what what were people the most afraid of when you were when they heard about what you were planning to do? Um, initially, it was it was definitely a number of people that came up pretty heavy, but we cleared that within I think the first planning commission meeting by cutting the population pretty drastically from seventy five to thirty. Um, the sort of mainstay concern was a pre-existing concern of flooding in the neighborhood and the concern that we would um, add to that. And our response was to have our engineer focus heavily on resolving that problem as much as we could. You can't solve a problem that big where we're at. It needs to be solved a little bit downstream. Are you in a floodplain? There's a... No. No, no. But there's a choke point about a block away from us that backs up and floods one or two houses. Gotcha. Um, I didn't know about the floodplain thing. Thanks, Tom. (laughs) Um, We shed about 22 acres, to be more specific in terms of engineering. But the way we approached that problem was from a a permaculture perspective. It was water is one of the most critical flows you can possibly have. And I've farmed the last three years here. There's been a drought every single year, and Mm -hmm. that's probably not going to change and it may get worse. Mm -hmm. So the neighbors coming to us and being very concerned about water flooding them, it's like, well, let's let's be selfish. Let's hold that water as much as we possibly can. So now we've developed a system that I I don't know how it compares to the other ones in Bloomington, but it's got to be pretty up near the top, I would imagine. It holds a lot of water and it sinks it into our ground. Um, and that's just from like the, an old school cistern situation. Uh, no, it's a, a fairly large dry pond which holds oh, okay. the water for about twenty four hours, allowing some to seep into the ground. We also run it through bio swales, which are open swales, which slow down with plants. Um, those two things count from an engineering perspective. We also have a large holding pond, which doesn't count for the water. It's just something we have on site. Ton of water for us to irrigate with. We also cut all of our um, garden beds this fall. About a quarter acre on contour permaculture laid out beds. Um, those slow down water every four feet and sink into the ground. We don't get to count that for engineering, but it's one more step above and beyond what, what the engineers calculated. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811, And uh, you can join us uh, on our website, dot. Uh, wait, yeah, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We're doing, uh, yeah, uh, we're doing a, a poll uh, online right now, too, yeah, if you want to okay. go on and, and participate in the poll. We're asking uh, what people's opinions are about cooperative living. Okay. Um, cooperative living versus, uh, you know, the, the 60s term, you know, commune or communal living. Is there a difference? And if so, what is it? Well, I, I heard that I heard that come up quite a bit. Um, people would stop me in the hallways and say, "You know, how's it going on the commune project?" <laughs> um, but you know, the way I, I look at cooperative living is again, you have an urban form which is using existing structures and people living together with common purpose, and that's one type of cooperative living. And then you have more of a, a model that's associated with building new homes and having more of a rural environment with with agriculture in some form. Um, I think it's a new model because it's a new model that's essentially looking at the current situation in regards to local food issues um, and the need to live more sustainably. So I think it's a different model than what I would call the commune model mm-hmm. that people people had in the 60s. I think it's completely different. Mm-hmm. And you said two and a half acres? Is that what you have? Two and a quarter. Two and a quarter acres. Okay. Yeah. So how would, how would it be laid out? You've got the 10 homes and you have the, the bigger – uh, property, the bigger building. building. So, and then you, you're going to have gardens, yep. so, so that you will maintain a 
you know, you'll you'll be growing all your food and you'll have some animals. That's yeah. the idea. Okay. I want to talk about that animal issue, too, because I know, you know, I mean, chickens in the city has been a big enough issue. So, you know, goats in the city would have to trump that, I would think. How, how did you sort that one out? Interestingly enough, uh, the chickens were probably a bigger issue than the goats because of the amount that was being requested. The amount that was being requested was 50. Okay. That makes sense for me as a planner because you're talking about two-plus acres as opposed to a typical fifth of an acre lot where you can have five. So I could do the math and make it make sense, but people looked at 50 chickens and said, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen with sanitation, noise, et cetera? Um, But what we were able to do is do what's called a phase-in where essentially uh, an initial number of chickens, I believe it was five or ten, uh, five well, ten without neighborhood approval. Five the 2012, five 2013. So there's a phase-in process that was linked to being a good neighbor. Essentially, more chickens could be added based on the neighbors being comfortable with how things were going, and we thought that was a a really good solution to mm-hmm. an issue that could have been really problematic. Still no roosters. Still no roosters. <laughs> well, I was going to say this starting small and adding. That's actually one of the permaculture principles, mm-hmm. which makes it very reasonable because you can start with start with something and, you know, try. Even I tell beginning gardeners, you know, start with a container garden and see how it goes and see what the feedback is and then go from there. So mm-hmm. so it's all kind of congruent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and on the goats and the animals in general, first of all, three goats, people sort of accepted that because it's a small number. But what we were arguing to our decision-making bodies is you can't have this project without the animals, that it's fundamental Mm -hmm. to the nature of the proposal. And to exclude animals from the project is essentially to say that you might as well turn the whole project down. So that's what we were able to argue successfully to plan commission city council is that was part of the the pact, if you will, between Mm -hmm. the community and Dandelion Village and the neighbors. It had to be one solution. Okay, I understand the chickens, but I, I'm sorry, I'm not a farmer. Um, explain to me the the value of the goats. Milk. Okay. <laughs> Cheese. All right. um, manure. No cows, though. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're also awesome for cleaning out the poison ivy on the property. Oh, they are? a lot of amazing uses for goats. For goats. They like yeah. to also, eat poison ivy? Uh-huh. They do. Yeah. And wow. There is some, uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is entirely accurate, but it's supposed to help you develop some immunity toward the year of poison ivy if you drink milk from a goat that from a poison ivy, ivy eating goat that's right mm. well there you go goat my cheese. fun fact for the day I'm, I can go home now that's fabulous yes. right. goat cheese but also cheese, you know processing leftover food they're also amazing companion animals they're one of the, the mm-hmm. kindest that you're going to find like mm-hmm. an incredible addition to a property and mm-hmm. sustainable agriculture includes animals we got to get used to that <laughs> yeah notion. right yeah. well you know it's funny i used to live in prospect hill and i had a little barn on my property that was original or well you know it seemed to be a mm-hmm. period to the to the house mm-hmm. and um and i remember hearing stories about people would keep a cow or you know some other friend they would take the cow down to the pond which has now been filled in but you know walk the and then leave you know leave it it down in that pasture with the pond during the day and then bring it back home at night. So it sounds like this is kind of uh, something similar along those lines, you know, a small manageable amount of livestock that uh, really contributes to your uh, economic bottom line and um, yet is you're still living mostly in urban environment. Is um, that going too far? Uh, no, I think that's that's pretty right on track. Um, we were also a cattle farm 40 years ago. So <laughs> it's bringing back the historic <laughs> agricultural use of this piece of land. Interesting. That we were a little bit larger land holding, maybe of 10 acres at that time. But mm-hmm. um, goats don't need a lot of space. Right. I've heard as little as 60 feet. Bronda might be able to, to verify that, but we're going to give them a lot more. They're going to live around in the orchard. So. What about the poop? What are you going to do with the goat poop? My garden loves it. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. And the chicken poop too? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure people are wondering. We talk about everything. Somebody's got to ask about the poop. I know, and you're the right person for it. So it seems. (laughs) And and an orchard. So you're going to have – what what size orchard are you going to have? We opened up a half acre this fall, um, disked it up, and then planted winter rye. It looks like it's going to be between 30 and 50 trees on on a dwarf root stock, which keeps them fairly small. Um, Mm -hmm. And we'll probably graft several different varieties of apples to different trees and other fruits. Mm -hmm. One tree can have lots of different types of apple. 
Mm-hmm. That's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I want Nora cool. there. <laughs> so I assume then that you are hoping to attract people to the to the I don't know settlement the right word. Um, Works yeah. Okay. The settlement, I, like commune settlement, okay. collaborative. I, you know, with different skill sets. Potato, potato. Because <laughs> it's you know, I mean, it would really. I know it run. And it's hard to to do a nursery right. I mean, you really need to know about fruit. Is not easy to grow. No, it's not at all. So you need to have somebody in your in your settlement that knows you know has that skill set. So is that something you're actively recruiting? Is you're saying, hey, we need somebody who is really an expert nursery person or. Um, I would love it. Fortunately, the Bloomington Cooperative Orchard, um, is that the correct name? Community. Community Orchard. Mm -hmm. Um, They've trained so many arborists in this town. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) What I'm, you know, what, that that question's bigger. Like, how do we educate our children? And that's Right now we have, you know, sorry, like one Montessori teacher. Maybe we're interested in having a nurse. But we don't actively search out those, those individuals, but... They definitely add to a more rich community. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Phone number is 855-0811-1877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition to join our live chat. We have a phone call from Darwin. Darwin? Hi. Um, I have a question about the uh, animals, uh, the regulation enforcement part of it. Uh, there are diseases that go along with uh, chickens and the manure, uh, salmonella, food poisoning, uh, different things like that. Will the county have to regulate that, or how is it going to be uh, controlled? I'd be happy to take that one, Darwin. Um, If there is an issue that does come up, um, which we would presume would would find out from Danny and his group, um, the county health department uh, would follow up with the with the property owner to find out what's going on and deal with the issue. So it's not something that we would do proactively, but the county health health department would get involved on a on a issue complaint basis to investigate and work with the property owner um, to to see that the issue is dealt with. Has the uh, county health department taken a uh, stance on the uh, egg issue and chickens in town that kind of thing? The county health department was actively involved in the review process of the project. Um, we met directly with them uh, to talk about issues of sanitation um, because at one question there we were we didn't know whether all the housing units would have city sewer and water, um, but they will. Um, we talked to them about any food sales issues because the county does regulate the the sale of any mm-hmm. sale of any produce, eggs, etc. Um, so we did talk to them about that um, with the idea that, that, that if, if there is going to be the sales of products on the property, that the county would specifically regulate that and, and work with Mr. Weddle. Okay. As far as the uh, program expanding to allow chickens or other animals in the city, has the county taken a position on that? County has not taken a position on that. I think they see that as a city issue in terms of what the city deems appropriate for the numbers of animals and the regulations within its jurisdiction. Okay, thank you. All right, Darwin. Thanks a lot for the call. You know, that brought up um, another question. Do you have to have um, some, do you have to have a certified food handler or are you guys going to be considered a a home in a private kitchen so you don't have to worry about that sort of thing? Um, I can answer the best I can. Okay. So there's there's two parts to that. Uh, yeah. We probably won't be selling a whole lot of food on site if that if the question comes from that that place. Um, so we may be involved in farmers market. In which case, if we do process at home, the law recently changed in the last year where you can do a small amount of production in a non certified kitchen so long as it's labeled. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were doing a larger production capacity, I would expect we'd have to have a commercial kitchen, mm-hmm. but we have the intention to place one in our cooperative structure just because it's, it's cheaper to do that sort of thing up front, and it mm-hmm. makes sense for the, the scale we're at. But in terms of the people, once we hit 2030, um, we won't be able to grow enough food for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's not, a, it's not a sustainable in terms of we grow everything we eat. It is a large number of people living close to downtown. That's where the majority of our sustainability comes from, is in the non-need to use fossil fuels for travel. Um, that's a common thing that comes up. Is, is, are you guys 100% self-sustaining? It's like, well, no one is. Mm-hmm. It's a common misconception in this world. I think permaculturists do everything themselves. Like, 
they don't make their tractors or their shoes <laughs> or their you know there's a, a million things that you mm-hmm. share mm-hmm. so. yeah. well we're going to ask Norm who's on the phone to wait until after we take a short break but we're going to have to take a, a break you're listening to Noon Edition we'll be right back This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. We're talking today with uh, three guests about cooperative living, uh, specifically the Dandelion Village Project in Bloomington, but also more generally about permaculture and some other issues that uh, cooperative living brings up. Uh, with us in the studio are Danny Weddle, co-founder of Dandelion Village, Tom Makuda, the director of the Bloomington Planning Department, and Rhonda Baird, who is uh, a permaculture expert. So <laughs> if you want to join us, please phone 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can join join us by going to the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have two callers on the phone, so let's go first to Norm. Norm? Hey, yeah, very interesting program. Um, I grew up in a social settlement house in Chicago uh, in a large house, which was the residence for professionals on the staff. These were college graduates, many with social work, well, with social work degrees, some graduate degrees, uh, some single people, uh, some married with children. Uh, in my instance, it was my, my sister and me and my mother. Uh, there was another family living there. It was a very unusual place for a kid to grow up and, and, and very good place, too. I just wonder whether the Dandelion uh, Project uh, contemplates uh, families and kids, because I think they can add a real important dimension to what's going on. And I'll take my answer off the air. All right. Thanks, thanks Norm. Man. I wanted to ask the same thing. One of the co-founders is pregnant. So <laughs> come June, we'll figure out how they'll be families. Um, the two houses we're building next year, one's for me and one's for the co-founder, his partner, and their young baby. So, mm-hmm. yeah, family is a huge part of it. Um, intergenerational, too, not just young family, not just 20s with kids, 30s with kids. It's... How do we get people that are 50s and 60s involved? Because there's, there's a, a divide in our culture of breaking up the generations, and we have to share critical skills before we mm-hmm. lose the, la- the top generation right now. It scares mm-hmm. me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's go back to the phones. And Rob. Rob? Hello. Is Rob there? Rob? We may Rob. Rob? Hello. Hey, there Rob. There you go. Hey. <laughs> go right ahead. Oh, hey. Yeah, uh, congratulations on uh, the approval of your project. Um, Thanks. I'm I'm wondering what has happened on the land so far, and how many people are involved, and what what does it cost someone, uh, you know, to be involved, and uh, uh, what 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 sort of a broader uh, time uh, 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 frame do you have, or uh, uh, you know, sort of. uh, what you see happening, and you know, I, I believe you just mentioned that two houses were, are going to be come under construction next year. And uh, where, where's it all at as far as uh, now that now that it's approved, is, is actualization? Great questions, Rob. Thanks. Cool. I, I think I got them all. Um, <laughs> if I miss one, we'll get back to you. Um, so the land so far, we uh, tilled up the garden beds for next year. I hired an intern who's going to be building the beds over the course of the year using a technique called culture. Um, that's taking all the woody material that we had to take down on the property and burying it in the bottom. 
that gives you know a good base to the to the gardens, and uh, that woody material maintains moisture. So we're building up garden beds over the course of this year. Um, there's a garden committee of four that's going to be working with that. Um, people involved right now. We had nine at our meeting on Monday. We had our first application for uh, a membership come in this week. Um, there are three full members right now. Mm, up to four or five, actually, full full members right now. And we've made invitations to several others. Um, so that gives you kind of a, a base of who's involved. Um, time frame. We're building two houses this year. And next year, we're hoping to build the 15-bedroom cooperative house and probably a, a third small house. Um, we're working with two architects right now on the cooperative house. And our meetings are – we have weekly meetings on Mondays. And those have been focused lately on developing that and uh, the orchard, which we plan to plant this fall. So that's a pretty big overview of those, those things that we want to be doing. A thing we have to be doing this year is infrastructure. So we'll be cutting in the road. We'll be clearing out um, – there's a sort of a bottom area where the pond's going to go. We're going to scrape that because it's our richest soil and put it into our garden beds. Um, and then put in the necessary ponds. So there's some city infrastructure going in, water, gas, electric, all the things you have to have to have a house, sewer. Um, and then, you yeah, know, the agricultural parts that I just mentioned. Yeah. Danny, do you do the work yourself, you and, and other people that are involved, or do you hire, like, a builder to come in and help? I, I'm building the houses. So it's, it's, it's a mix. We have architects, but um, during the week I'm, I'm kind of a politician, and on the weekend I go to my parents' tree farm and, and manage the trees. And I bring down um, what we need to, to cut into lumber for the two houses this year. Mm-hmm. So I have a um, 50-acre farm 26 miles southwest of here. Okay. I, what, oh, I was just going to ask, what building technique are you going to use? Are you going to use mud and straw for the houses, or do you know? Um, well, mud will be in there for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, we're switching over to rice hulls instead of straw. Rice hulls seem to be a superior um, insulator, insulator yeah. uh, because you can ensure it's dry throughout. You can spray it. It's R value equivalent to straw. Um, it's naturally water resistant because the plant grows in the water, and it's actually natural bug resistant because the high silica content in the material. Um, not many houses built with it. Across the board, it seems to be a more elegant answer. Uh, my house is timber frame, which is what you'd see in an old barn. Mm-hmm. And then the outside is going to be faced with uh, washed limestone from the creek beds at my parents' house. The other founder's house is um, earthen brick. So it's a lot like adobe that you'd see in mm-hmm. the southwest. Mm-hmm. It's a new Midwest building technique where you use a tractor to um, run a hydraulic press that presses out blocks. So both of those houses have large greenhouses on the south side. And that's where a majority of the heating comes from. I'd like to see those bricks being made. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What are the costs for a, a member? And uh, Oh, cost. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And I suppose, uh, you know, in addition to uh, paying for the construction of one's own house. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the construction is very wide. I'll touch on the, the cost first. It looks like it's going to be around 10000 um, for the buy-in fee. That covers the infrastructure and cost of the land. Um, we've been structuring it different ways in which people can pay in over time. So if you pay in up front, likely your membership will be worth, say, 12500 in five years. And if you pay as you go, you pay in $12,500. Um, I can go into financials really deeply, but that's just a quick <laughs> synopsis. You can pay in over time or, or it's some amount up front, and it, those aren't set exactly. Is yet. there a number where uh, Rob can get a hold of you if he wants uh, further detail? Yeah, my phone number is 812-583-0803. And our uh, website's dandelionvillage.org. Um, okay. Thanks, Rob. Thanks. All right. Uh, let's go back to uh, another caller. Jane is next. Jane? Yeah. Hi. I'm um, living right outside Columbus, and I'm part of an eco-village that's just beginning out here called Keeping Hill. And everything that I'm listening to the Dandelion Village people talk about, I can so relate to. We really went through... Um, a, a rather agonizing process with our zoning people here in Columbus and Bartholomew County. It was a big educational uh, journey to, to really educate people out here. And um, we're out in the country, outside the city limits. And actually, my husband and I um, first built a house here about 18 years ago, before green was really uh, an adjective, and we used a lot of green materials and things that were very new at that time. We have since sold 20 acres to the Keeping Hill Village, and we have one house um, already built, and um, we're just beginning to look for new members. So I wanted to make a comment, and also I have a question. Um, One of the comments is just the the distinction I think is important to make for people between cooperative and communal, because a cooperative is is really a different model, and I think it's a business model that... um, 
is really important at this time in our economy. Um, and it's different from communal, at least in our situation, because everybody does not own every single thing equally. People will own their own plot and their own house and then have joint ownership of the, um, the land that's around us. The idea is to have cluster housing to use minimize impact on the land, which is just what the dandelion people were talking about. So I think that's kind of a cool and exciting um, model that, you know, we're starting to see more of. My question for, for the Dandelion Village people is I'm curious how you're doing outreach and, and bringing members in, and how are you, how are you getting people to, to join up? Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, I totally agree with the cooperative and, and communal remark. There's also a very strong legal distinction between those things that's mm-hmm, important exactly. to know. And when you wrap yourself into cooperative, you can get stuck into some situations that you, you don't want to be legally. Yeah. Um, Sorry, can you ask your question again? Oh, well, the question is just how are you doing <laughs> outreach and, oh, yeah, yeah, and, and soliciting members? We're, we're finding that's the step that we really need to be active with right now. And, by the way, you know, it would be great for us to share some of our experiences. We're at keepinghill.org, and I'm going to look you guys up and contact you too. But um, just how are you doing that? What's your outreach um, process? Well, I, I've tried a lot of things, actually. I've tried Facebook groups, Google groups, um, word of mouth. Fortunately, I'm downtown Bloomington, so uh, I think the thing that's going to work for us is building two houses, quite yeah. frankly. Mm-hmm. If we settle in and make something beautiful, we're not going to have a single problem finding members in this town. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, in, the commu- in the country, it's a different story. Um, you have to pull people out, and you have to create a much denser culture on site. Right. We're not responsible for that. I mean, we will have a dense cultural site, too, but there's also Bloomington, so we can lean both ways. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, my answer is I've tried a lot of different things in terms of outreach. My background, I actually have a marketing degree. Like, that's that's my world. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to build an incredibly beautiful house. Yeah. Yeah, smart. Yeah, I think that's what we have going for us, too. We have one beautiful house that's up there, and we just need to get people to see it. There you go. And the owner of that... Um, used actually used a took apart a barn and recycled all the pieces of the barn and her kitchen ceiling is is old wooden barn siding that's kind of burnished red that was washed and cleaned and there are many cool things going on in that house and it's just I think once people see it that's the key is getting them out there. Yeah. Jane, but anyway, how, congratulations! I'm excited for you guys. Jane, how how big is the property that you're on now? Well, um, Keeping Hill is 20 acres, uh-huh. and we're looking for eight households, ultimately. Okay. We have a circle drive put in. We have um, sites designated for eight households and one site for a common house. Uh-huh. Okay. And we, need, awesome. we figure we need two more member, family members, before we can begin the work on the common house. And, you know, so once we get ahead of steam, I think that's going to bring people in, just like, like the Dandelion Village guys saying. Okay. All right. We appreciate your call. Yeah, thanks. All right. Thanks a lot. 855 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area, and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the site. We have Marie, who's been patiently waiting for nine minutes. Marie, go ahead. Yes. Uh, <laughs> hi. Uh, good afternoon. Very interesting. Now, I'm talking from age and a lot of experience in living on farms. Uh, I want to talk about your orchard. First of all, and I don't know if I misunderstood, but I thought that you said your your goats would be in the orchard. Big mistake. You don't want any goats in the orchard. They will eat, particularly if you have low-growing fruit trees. They will eat the branches. They will tear up everything. So don't put any goats in your orchard. Thank you. I have a better solution for you, and it works wonderful. You want to fence in your orchard, and you want to have about eight or ten geese. Geese mm-hmm. are wonderful. Now, you want to keep the right wing clipped so they don't fly off. But geese will keep, you'll never have to cut the grass. They will keep eating the grass around your trees. They will not climb the trees. And, of course, their poop will fertilize your ground. So this is good. 
And also the uh, goose eggs are very good for cakes, to make cakes. They're big and very uh, sort of greasy. Mm-hmm. And also people can eat them. And then uh, every other Christmas, maybe you can sacrifice one of your geese. You take the younger ones. <laughs> and so uh, if you have a big fireplace, you can uh, put it on a spit. So these are my general uh, advice for people with orchard. And also, um, if you have trees that don't produce, just cull them. Just start with a different one because... Some trees just don't like it there, you know, at a certain space. So you have to find trees that are going to be happy where they are. Okay? Marie, any that's, questions? No, that's fantastic. Danny, you have any questions for Marie? Um, what do you think about geese, Tom? <laughs> is, is it zoned for geese? No, it's not zoned for geese. I, I, I wish I would have talked to you about six months ago. <laughs> I just saw Tom going to a full-body pucker. Yeah. Geese! Nobody said anything about geese! <laughs> oh, yeah. Those white geese, you know, the embers, I think they're called, they're just perfect. And they're not going to make too much noise. One thing that I wanted to tell you about the goats, sometimes you have a kind that you might call a bleater. And I can remember a horrible experience. I was taking one of the goats. I was teaching art, and I took the goat, uh, who was unfortunately a bleater, to an elementary school. And the principal really complained because he (laughs) said he couldn't do his work. He had to close his window. (laughs) You know, it was just really bad. The kids loved it, you know. Uh, Marie, hold on just a second. I want to ask a question while you're still on the line. Uh Um, The wisdom that she's bringing to bear here um, makes me wonder, do you have plans for any kind of an advisory board for people who don't necessarily, you know, choose to live on the property but might have um, wisdom, much as Marie is offering up here, um, to share? Yeah, we actually carried an an elder circle for our first year, year and a half. It's um, not been reestablished with the, the creation of the new website, but we turn to them probably twice a year with questions. Mm-hmm. I think you were on it, Rhonda, yeah. There's a, a lot of individuals, mm-hmm. a lot of permaculturists from town, probably 20 members or so. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. if you want to put me on that list, I would, uh, I, you know, I don't know what uh, kind of expertise you're ex- you, you want, but uh, I know a lot because I've lived on the farm and uh, I know how to build cows. <laughs> I know things you know my grandmother used to have goats and uh, they're very sneaky they'll wait until you've pretty much milked them and then poof put their foot in the pail that has the milk so you have to be really careful <laughs> to hold them right Marie this is this, this is great information I, <laughs> I really appreciate your calling today this okay. is great you want my phone number well I, why don't yeah do you, you want to give yours out again? Yeah, I'll give mine out Yeah, yeah we don't want to put your n- yours number over right. the air, right. Marie. Uh, right. Mine's 812 and we have a question that came in uh, online. It says, uh, for Mr. Makuta and everyone to respond, uh, I was wondering if we can make the process easier for similar projects like the Eco Village. Most people don't have thousands of dollars to spend on engineers required for a UDL. Uh, I certainly hope so. Um, again, the co-op housing issue is pretty new to Bloomington, so there's an education process which lends itself to more time when we do these initial projects. But as people get more comfortable with this, um, I would envision at some point in the future that we'll change our code specifically related to cooperative housing, eco-villages, so we can create a process that's that's much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have to go through a six- to nine-month process um, like Mr. Weddle did. Mm-hmm. All right. We have about uh, ten minutes to go in the program, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Uh, did I cut somebody off? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I don't know. We, me and Tom have talked about this occasionally. But I really hope we can become an example for some sort of new zoning something that develops out watching us over the next two or three years because, yeah, it is very difficult to go through this process. We're talking 150 pages of writing – Really brilliant people, 
it shouldn't be that hard to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And they've been awesome. Like, yeah. That's not knocking Tom or anybody. This is the, the most elegant I think this could be is probably in Bloomington. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Rhonda, I wanted to ask about permaculture just more in, in general and about the importance of it uh, you know, in our community and elsewhere you mm-hmm. know, going forward. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I, I think we talked off the air about you know, neighborhoods as villages, and I would assume that permaculture would be a major part of, of that kind of a concept. Sure. Um, part of the permaculture vision is that uh, it, we just – I don't think I conveyed earlier well enough that it's, you know, it's an ethical system of design that's based on principles. So it has all of that going for it. And using the systems, you can use that to design eco-villages that, like, in, that Danny's doing. Um, you can, I say sometimes you can use those principles and, and methods to design everything from the, how I organize my kitchen all the way up to regional planning. So... Um, One of the great things that permaculture does is it gives you a great set of tools and allows you to ask some really good questions. And when people are working in permaculture, they look at how do we we deal with cities, um, what's appropriate, what's going to be appropriate moving forward within our our limits. Um, One of the things that we really see happening is that the cities, particularly cities our size, we can see the neighborhoods – really becoming the focus economically, um, you know, culturally. Like, each neighborhood will interact with the other neighborhoods in the city, but it will have its own sort of center of gravity and its own niche. And the people living within those neighborhoods really taking on different economic functions, different agricultural functions, some of the things that we see starting to emerge in Dandelion. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, right now in the city, it seems like there there aren't many neighborhoods where there are, uh, are the um, say commercial aspects in them, or and now you you know we just have one you know one eco village that's starting. But then, I mean, there've been there's been discussion for a few years about uh, you know trying to create this neighborhood concept, and it, uh, I guess Tom, I'd like your reaction to that because it doesn't seem like it's it seems like there have been neighborhoods built, but that for some reason the commercial hasn't followed very yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, I think the two biggest challenges for what I call the neighborhood node concept would be to introduce food and mm-hmm. to introduce sustainability into the neighborhoods because that's a very hard pattern to change for people who are used to shopping at Kroger mm-hmm. and not thinking about production of food within their own neighborhood. That's one area. The other difficult thing, which is which has become more difficult now because of market problems, is introducing uh, commercial into neighborhoods or at the edge of neighborhoods. Um, it's a concept that cities had for a long period of time. Uh, it's We've had practical manifestations of it. Uh, the grocery store at 2nd and Fess Avenue for years and years and years mm-hmm. was the perfect example of it that. It was great. Mm-hmm. But markets changed, dynamics changed, the grocery store closed. We are extremely hopeful in the future that we'll be able to get somebody to develop that site with another grocery store. Mm-hmm. And we've had conversations with people interested in that. That's the other piece of the equation. Um, again, markets are difficult for this. Um, but it is Bloomington. We have a lot of entrepreneurs. We have a lot of neighborhoods mm-hmm. that would welcome this as opposed to maybe fight it, mm-hmm. which happens in a lot of other areas. So I'm optimistic in the future for both food production and the sell of basic convenience goods for people within neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even a decentralization, as much as I love the farmer's market, but I think a decentralization of that to some extent would be helpful for people too mm-hmm. who could, you know, when you can pull your cart to, to get your food and then walk you know, walk home as opposed to it's just the, the downtown location is great, but it's not necessarily accessible for everybody, especially from a walking perspective. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Dan. Um, one of our side projects, and we've had it up and running now for probably six or eight months, is a food buying club, mm-hmm. but it breaks it down is a, a food cooperative so you can buy a pound at a time the old food buying clubs you have to walk home with 50 pounds mm-hmm. so there are there are answers that have much less overhead than grocery stores and food buying clubs allow open two hours a week you come and pick up whatever you ordered or you buy mm-hmm. it by the pound mm-hmm. um, that could be done in every neighborhood it's just a matter of of getting the legal permission to do that i know that green acres neighborhood eco village which is the other eco village in town mm-hmm. and kind of sad they're not here <laughs> you know, it's hard to find all these people but 
you know, they tried to do like a small shop on site, but what stopped them was they had to put um, sidewalks in. So that bankrupted their ability to do that. Like there's so much legal things that come into play that inhibit our ability to run small businesses. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Tom, I wanted to, mm-hmm. to ask about the new – there's a new project that's across the street from the South Dunn project. Does, I mean, that to me – I mean, when I, when I envision what you're thinking about for neighborhoods, I mean, that, that took a while. But there are businesses that have gone in there. Mm-hmm. there there's housing right behind with, you know, the alleys, and, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a, a nice neighborhood. And now another project. I mean, is this a sign that perhaps this uh, concept is – actually happening? Yes. Um, again, Bloomington is making baby steps like a lot of other communities, and it takes time. Uh, but in lieu of having neighborhoods organically be able to produce sustainability, having some of these centers that are strategically located are really helpful. And mm-hmm. uh, again, think about that neighborhood before South Dunn Street. There was not an opportunity mm-hmm. for people living in Bryan Park or along Hillside Drive to do anything other than go to Marsh or Kroger. And now they have an opportunity to get the bite to eat. They have an opportunity to get their hair done. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll have more opportunities once mm-hmm. the development across the street goes. And that's, that's what planners are interested in trying to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have, less, we have about a minute to go. So I wanted to give them, you know, uh, uh, Rhonda and, and Danny a chance to, to give any last pitch for you know, what you're doing. And websites. What you're, what you're doing. And websites people. for people who want more information. Yeah. And I'll, go, I'll go and then you can. Um, so I do a lot of permaculture education. I do I have uh, five different classes coming through People's University. Just touching on, there's actually one on neighborhoods, talking to your neighbors, and maybe if you're interested in some of this or furthering, I can talk about what's going on and what um, what is coming up, and animals too. But uh, my business that I run a lot of my education through is Sheltering Hills Design. So it's shelteringhillsdesign.net. Okay. Cool. Um, I'll start with our website. It's dandelionvillage.org. Um, we're definitely interested in new ideas and new people. We meet every Monday at um, 6 or 7 p.m. We're set, setting the date um, based on some people who have classes. Um, we're looking for interns. If you want to learn how to build a house, if you want to learn how to garden an orchard, just get a hold of us. Okay. All right. I want to thank our guest today, Daniel Weddle, co-founder of Dandelion Village, and Tom Makuda from the city of Bloomington, and Rhonda Baird, a permaculture activist and expert, I would say. Um, for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Gretchen Frazee, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933, online at mypremierortho.com.